Hello and welcome to the Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust Podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook. And this week, I'm joined by Matt Hose, the Alternative Assets Analyst at Jefferies, to talk about the Alternative Asset Trusts, looking behind the big derating they suffered last year, to see how different sectors have reacted, and the outlook from here for those particular types of trust. And then by Stuart Widdison, Manager of the Edition Investment Trust, a small cap specialist, which uh, has the distinction of being one of only two in its sector to have produced a positive return over the last 12 months no mean achievement in a year when the UK small and mid-cap indices were down by the best part of 20% or so. Uh, More from them in a moment. It's been an up and down sort of week in the markets, with most equity markets uh, having a good day on Friday to finish the week roughly flat over the week, although the FTSE was down slightly over the five days. Bond deals also finished roughly where they started, as did commodities with minor increases for copper, oil and gold, while gas prices uh, continue to fall. Uh, Good news for energy consumers, at least. For those who are interested in the crypto phenomenon, it may be worth noting that Bitcoin had another good week and is now up more than 25% since the start of the year. Read into that what you will. Uh, In the investment trust sector, it was also a relatively quiet week for news. Notable announcements included uh, BH Macro, the hedge fund, which has thrived in the uh, bear market of uh, 2022, saying it's thinking about an equity raise after a strong run and its shares moving out to a big premium. In the other direction, Smithson, the global smaller companies trust run by Terry Smith, which has been trading at a double-digit discount, said it was looking for permission from shareholders to reduce its share premium account so as to be able to do more share buybacks, uh, presumably with the intention of bringing that discount in. The two troubled social housing trusts, Civitas Social Housing and Triple Point Social Housing, were again among the week's worst performers after the Housing Association regulator said it was issuing an enforcement notice against one of their tenants. And Home REIT, whose shares were suspended after a series of critical allegations, said its investment advisor had appointed a specialist social housing firm at its own expense, in order to help manage the assets through this difficult period. The board, meanwhile, said that the independent audit of its uh, annual results would not be completed before the end of January, and therefore the shares will remain suspended till at least that date. Commercial property trusts were, again, dominated the list of those with the greatest NAV falls over the week, while the best share price performer was Baker Steel Resources. As always, the Moneymakers website has a comprehensive summary of all the week's investment trust news and market movements for subscribers. This week's in-depth profile is of Oakley Capital Investments, the private equity trust, while I summarize my notes from Winterflood's annual investment trust conference held this week. That included five presentations by fund managers, all of them interesting, and a panel session on the outlook for the industrial warehouse logistics uh, commercial property sector, which has been among the sectors worst affected by the rise in inflation and corresponding increase in bond yields. The Investment Trust Index is up around 3% so far this year, while the average discount remains stuck around the 13% level, still some 10% wider than where it was at the start of last year. So my first port of call this week was to talk to Matt Hose, who is the Alternative Assets Analyst at the Investment Bank Jefferies. And I started off by saying to him, 
Obviously, we know that uh, 2022 was a tough year for all types of asset and all types of investment trusts, both alternative assets and equity trusts. Looking at the performance of alternatives overall, this was the first year for some time that we've actually had a pretty bad outcome for alternative assets uh, derating as well as losing value in NAV terms as well in, in a number of cases. Yeah, I think that's a very fair comment. I mean, if we think about some of the sectors, infrastructure, you probably had a bit of nav strength last year, but a mild derating. Renewables, the same, probably more nav strength on the back of higher power prices, but a derating. And then the most marked derating is probably listed private equity, where the market is clearly anticipating lower marks and lower navs in the near to medium term. The biggest factor behind this, I mean, there are several factors, obviously, but the biggest factor probably has been the surge in inflation and the resulting policy response from central banks, raising interest rates and uh, driving up bond yields in the process and potentially uh, triggering a recession, at least in some parts of the world. Perhaps you could just explain why uh, alternative assets in particular are vulnerable to a climate of rising bond yields. So the main mechanism that rising bond yields gets transferred into the valuations and NAVs of alternative assets is via the discount rate on the discounted cash flow valuation. So the portfolios are valued off a string of longer term cash flows. Those cash flows are deemed discounted back. But the discount rate they use is a function of risk-free rates and a risk premium added on top, depending on how risky that project or, or company and their cash flows are. So when rates started to increase, we had a buffer built into the risk premium element, but that buffer was quickly blown through. I mean, that happened in September, effectively, when the yields spiked under the uh, Liz Trust government. And then after that, yields got to, I mean, broadly 4%. And that was a level which implied discount rate increases. And then in, in the second half of the year, second half of last year, we saw higher discount rates feed through. Now, that should, in isolation, lower NAVs. But what we also saw clearly is, is inflation coming through. And what that did is the funds increased their near-term inflation assumptions, and that led to higher NAVs. And so the net effect was broadly those two things offset each other. So, as you said, the current yield on a 10-year gilt, for example, which some people use as a proxy for the risk-free rate, you mentioned is as you somewhere just shy over three and a half percent, having been quite a lot higher, as you say, back in September, October. So what kind of range are we talking in about, if you like, the headroom between those gilt yields and uh, the kind of discount rates that uh, different types of alternative asset trusts are using? So perhaps we could take a range from, you know, the kind of the ones with the lowest discount rates to those with the higher discount rates. So discount rates Pre last year, you could think about being sort of 7% to 10%. And then pre last year, your risk free rate, you could say it was 1%, your 10 year guilt yield or 20 year guilt yield. Now, clearly, you've gone from that 1% has gone to best part of 4%. So that's 3% higher. But your risk premium buffer was more like 200 bips. And so that's basically why we've seen about 100 bips of increase in discount rates. So your, your seven discount rate for a Hickel or an IMPP last year has basically become 8%. Now, if we get any further increases in gilt yields, that should translate through to discount rates on a sort of one-for-one one basis. So if yields become 4.5%, then you're looking at discount rates moving from 8 to 8.5%, et cetera. 
The big exception is where you've got higher discount rates, and let's, let's call it double-digit discount rates, because in that case, you've got an even larger risk premium buffer, and that should be enough to absorb the higher yields. So where you've got assets like battery storage with double-digit discount rates, or like a three-hour infrastructure with double-digit discount rate, we think those funds can weather much higher risk-free rates without necessarily increasing their overall discount rate. The corollary of that, of course, is a lot, therefore, must depend on what actually happens to gilt yields over the next uh, 12 months. And obviously, there's a whole range of forecasts out there about what that might be. But uh, most alternative asset trusts, they have to incorporate these valuations at regular quarterly intervals, but only with a lag. So what does the kind of calendar look like in terms of different types of alternative asset trusts, you know, reporting their, their end year NAVs? which I guess are the ones they normally put their most effort into, if you like, make the most adjustments to. They'll be looking at the year as a whole. Will they all be taking the current gilt yield when they're actually doing that end-of-year evaluation? Yeah, they'll be just thinking about Q4. If they do quarterly NAVs, which is the vast majority, I mean, there's one or two out there which just do biannual NAVs. So, I mean, if we think about the three largest sort of pools of alternative funds, infrastructure renewables, private equity, running through those in turn, you'd expect infrastructure um, NAVs in Q4 and at the year end to be broadly flat because you've still got a situation where any strength in inflation numbers is basically offsetting any move in the discount rate. We wouldn't expect any particularly strong moves in, in discount rates over Q4 because actually the guilt is lower than it was struck at 30th of September. Renewables, you've got those two factors in the mix, but you've also got one further factor, and that's power prices. And what we saw over Q4 is the UK forward power price curve fell quite sharply. So on that forward curve, 2023 prices at Q3 were about £400 a megawatt, but are now more like £200 a megawatt. So the funds will have to lower the front end of their power price assumption where they've got any sort of merchant exposure or sort of residual, you know, non-hedge, non-fixed exposure. So that would drive generally some weak nabs for those funds at the Q4 valuation point. And then on private equity, listed equity markets were actually strong over Q4, reasonably strong. I mean, the average equity index went up by about 5%. But there's a debate about what's going to happen at Q4, because we may see this year-end effect where private equity valuations are audited at Q4 and the private equity GPs may revert back to their sort of core valuation processes at Q4 and decide to take write-downs to reflect the movement in listed equity indices over the year. So that's an interesting effect we may see or um, we may not. It's largely up for debate and will depend on different GPs. Right, but the key point being that they will be audited and therefore if you're a director of one of these trusts, you've got to make sure that that audit is fair and effective. In the latter case of private equity, do you think there'll be a bias towards conservatism or will there be something more optimistic, do you think? I think the market needs some conservatism. I think the market does need lower marks and lower NAVs in a number of these trusts because at the moment there's there's a disconnect. The market team doesn't believe that the the falls in listed equity indices are reflected in the NAVs of these funds and that's why discounts are so wide. Um, The debate is whether we're actually going to get these write-downs in a NAV. It's not completely clear. And what we may get is a scenario like we had in 2008, 2009, where the funds didn't really write, you know, I mean, the markets fell sharply, but the funds didn't really write down their portfolios. What happened is they sort of flatlined the valuations for three quarters. Then they hit Q2 2009, where markets rallied sharply. Then they started to write the portfolios back up again. 
Right, so uh, not necessarily entirely consistent through the cycle, shall we say. Would that be a fair comment? No, that's very fair, yeah. And the other point to make, I mean, this week we've heard some NAV updates from a number of private equity trusts. So Harbourvest Global Private Equity, for example, Pantheon, Aberdeen Private Equity Opportunities, and also the NB Private Equity Trust. They've all put out something about their uh, NAVs. But I guess it's pretty important to emphasise that most of those valuations, even though they put out a end-year NAV, are actually relating to the period ending Q3 last year. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Those NAVs, that set of NAVs you mentioned, are largely flat because it's still too early for Q4 marks to be incorporated. So they largely reflect Q3 marks and, and the performance of listed holdings over Q4. But for the private holdings, Q3 marks... And Q3 was generally a flat quarter. So there's there's nothing really to write home about in those in those NAVs. It's still far too early. Right. So in the case of private equity, when will we be getting those important Q4 audited NAVs uh, appearing? What sort of period are we looking at to see those? The first Q4 will come actually next week with Oakley. That's a very sort of early one. Then we'll generally have to wait until February, late February or March before we start to get a lot more sort of data points there. And in terms of, if we look back at the renewables and the infrastructure, what's the process there in terms of lags in reporting? How do they compare to the uh, private equity trust? Presumably, the renewable energy trusts are, are more up to date, generally speaking, and the infrastructure ones are probably somewhere still a little bit uh, behind them. Is that right? Yeah, renewables are still marked at Q3. So we'll start seeing their NAVs come through possibly next week, but then uh, into early February. Infrastructure is a little bit different because some of the reporters there are biannual reporters. So if they're year-end, you know, 31st December reporter, we may have to wait until February or March. But if they're a 31st of March reporter, we may have to wait until May or even June. So there's even bigger lag. Okay, so this is all quite difficult for shareholders to incorporate all these facts, and that's why you get paid, I guess, to do what you do. Just therefore explain, since we had that big rise in bond yields and in gilt prices, gilt yields in particular, back in September, October, how actually have these different asset classes in the alternative asset space, how have they actually performed since then? What judgments have investors been making about the progress or the risks since that period? I mean, the shares have generally been weak across those three subsectors that we've, we've talked about. It's interesting because we actually don't think it's fundamentally driven. I think the market has been fairly comfortable with discount rate rises. It was always a risk, sort of discount rate liftoff, that the market would sort of struggle with that process. Because obviously some of the funds are very discount rate sensitive, their valuations. But no, so far, I think the market's been fairly comfortable with the process. And, and the reason is, is the inflation linkage in many funds has kicked in and offered an offset. Where we've actually seen weakness, we, we think it's on the technical side in that, particularly in Q4, there are a number of larger multi-asset funds suffering some quite meaningful redemptions. And clearly then they have to sell investment company holdings. And I think the market is still digesting that stock. And so that's why on infrastructure renewables in particular, you see funds which traditionally trade on sort of 10% premium are uh, now trading around now. Yes, I was going to come on to that because that's a very significant factor, isn't it? I mean, the second part of the alternative asset story in 2022 was the very significant derating that we saw. 
partly because they're anticipating the uh, reductions in NAV that you were talking about, all the higher discount rates you were talking about, uh, but also because of selling and liquidity factors. So in terms of the derating, looking across those three sectors again, in terms of the sort of average ratings, which ones have been worst affected in terms of derating? Private equity is probably the most pronounced derating because, I mean, discounts are, I'd say, 20 to 25% wider than a year ago. Clearly, it's anticipating NAVs, which should be, say, 15 or 20% lower. But then, you know, in certain renewable names, there seems to be quite a pronounced derating. I mean, the thing that struck me earlier, actually, is some of the European-focused renewable names are now trading at sort of 10 and even 20 discounts. Again, I think it's partly technical, but there actually seems to be a, an interesting situation there where there's an EU-wide price cap on renewable generators, but no one actually gets hit by that price cap because it's too high. It's 190 euros a megawatt. But then there's recently been discussion of an EU-wide windfall tax as well, which presumably would be struck at a lower level. And so maybe that started to creep into the ratings of some funds. Infrastructure is probably held up best because there you've got higher levels of inflation linkage coming through. Those funds are generally derated from sort of 10% premium onto around NAV. Just one point about to windfall taxes. So the renewable energy trust in this country, and certainly the ones that have generation in this country as opposed to overseas, the proposal from the UK government for a windfall tax has been incorporated into their valuations already. It will just be updated at the year end. Is that right? Or will they be incorporated for the first time in the year end valuations on the basis that the windfall tax hasn't yet uh, cut in? That's a good point. We now have complete visibility over how that tax will work and that tax is is effect in operation today. So anything above £75 per megawatt, they're losing 45% to the government. What the funds have done is they put out sort of provisional NAVs late last year saying this is a likely impact on, on NAV factoring in the tax taking effect from sort of 2023 to 2028. When they announce the actual Q4 or year end NAVs, they'll put through a better estimate of the, the actual impacts from that windfall tax. And of course, the flip side of all this derating must be that the prospective yields, or at least the projected yields on a number of these trusts, will have gone up. That's just a logical consequence of the derating. And I suppose the other big question for the whole alternative asset sector is, you know, how reliable or how sustainable are the current dividend yields going to be? And I guess that will vary, obviously, according to individual circumstances of particular trusts. But in general terms, what sort of yields are we getting now across these three uh, major alternative sectors. And uh, are there any concerns about sustainability? So yields are now, I mean, from being sort of four and fives, given sort of 10% of the ratings, they've sort of crept up into many funds, sort of fives and sixes. But then sustainability all comes down to dividend cover. And if we're looking at the renewables, you could look at it and say, well, look, given the loss of revenue to the windfall tax, there's issues. But actually, the reverse is probably true because many of the renewables were locking in power prices during the last 18 months. And so they were sort of forward selling power at two, three, even £400 a megawatt. And so that's in effect the windfall they're now being taxed on. So actually, for the next one, two, three years, you should actually get some very good dividend cover numbers, even despite the windfall tax from the renewables. The other consequence of all this, of course, is that it's become much harder and impossible in many cases for 
trust to keep on issuing secondary issuance. And as long as those that are at discounts remain at discounts, they're not going to be able to raise funding. So are there some concerns in some places about their ability to meet their commitments if they have, for example, in private equity committed to future projects or whatever it might be, and they've got to fund those, which they would often do by issuing new shares. Uh, If that remains out of the question, if, then uh, are there going to be some trusts which are going to have to uh, do some manoeuvring, if you like, to cope with the lack of funding available to them? So there's two sort of camps there. There's funds with sort of off-balance sheet commitments, like, as you mentioned, private equity. Those funds have been on discounts for the best part of 10 or 15 years now, basically since the global financial crisis. And they haven't relied on share issuance to fund those commitments. Instead, they rely on the recycling of capital. So they invest in private equity deals. Five years down the line, those, those deals exit. And then they use those exit proceeds to reinvest in commitments when they're drawn. So that process won't change. The good thing for those funds is 2021 was a record year for realizations and exits, both for the private equity industry, but also for most of the individual funds. And so their balance sheets still sort of reflect that. So even though exits are hard to come by at the moment, the level of commitments is actually still well covered. And so it's, it's something to certainly watch but it's not an issue in the near term. The other sort of issue or segment there is funds, particularly in the infrastructure and renewable space, which make investments using revolving credit facilities, so short-term debt, and then we'll try and, once those facilities are full, we'll try and raise equity to pay down. And clearly, as you say, a lot of those funds are now on discounts and, and that process doesn't work. What those funds really need to do is, well, for a start, the revolving credit facilities have often two, three, four-year lives on them. So there's no immediate need to delever and they can bide their time and wait for ratings to recover in our space and then potentially raise equity then. Or the other avenue open to them is to sell assets. So if they're more mature assets, assets with lower perspective returns, then they could potentially sell those assets and repay the RCF that way. So again, it's something we spend a lot of time sort of looking at RCF drawings and maturities and options to raise capital. It's not a, an immediate source of concern, but it's just, again, it's something to have a sort of watch and brief over. Turning to what we've learned this week as well, I mentioned the NAV updates from some of the private equity trusts, which don't have much meaning. But we have heard from one of the renewable trusts. We heard from Octopus Renewables, uh, ORIT, ticker O-R-I-T, and they've actually confidently raising their dividend target for the coming year. Is that likely to be a consistent pattern or are they uh, uh, something of an outlier in that respect? No, again, because a lot of these funds have been locking in very high power prices, then dividend cover for 23, 24, possibly 25 will be strong. And so I'd expect to see some good dividend increases come through. The funds have to be a little bit careful though, because at some stage, these locked-in higher power prices will roll off and then they'll roll off into a, a lower power price environment because at the moment, the UK day-ahead power price is £100 per megawatt, for example. So you don't want to put your dividend up too much in the interim because when those high prices roll off, your revenue will come down and your dividend cover will erode. And it's just worth remembering that certainly pre-Ukraine and pre-September 21, dividend cover and a lot of these funds was reasonably close to one times. So there wasn't much headroom. And if we revert back to a power price environment of, say, £50 a megawatt, which is what we had in the earlier part of 21 
and through 20 and even before COVID, then you know there could be some downsides to these dividend cover numbers. So they have to be very careful about the extent of dividend increases they actually put through. Okay, so I think in the case of Orange, they're looking at a prospective yield of around 6.1%, something like that, and that will be fully covered the next year, they are confident. But as you're saying, all these trusts have got to be careful about, if you like, uh, maintaining the ability to pay cover dividends rather than just a simple attractive-looking yield. Just as a sidebar, we tend to be quite focused on dividend cover because why we think it's important is that if a dividend is not covered, you're effectively returning capital at NAV. And that's fine if you're on a discount, but that doesn't really support trading on a premium. So um, yeah, the risk of an uncovered dividend is something we watch, we watch quite closely. Yes, of course. From the point of view of the managers of these trusts, the fund managers, they've obviously been very successful at growing the size of these trusts in the last few years by the ability to issue new shares because they're trading at a premium. And we saw a lot of that from the renewables, for example, in the first half of last year, or quite a lot anyway, though the overall total was down. Is it a fair comment that there is a little bit of a conflict of interest here between the fund managers who want to grow the size of the trust and their fees uh, and the interests of shareholders who may want them to be more conservative and to concentrate on sustaining those dividends, which are the primary attraction of investing in these vehicles in the first case? Yeah, if there is, I mean, there's clearly an agency problem. I can completely agree. And managers are incentivized to grow the vehicle. And sometimes that can be at the expense of shareholder returns. And I mean, crucially, the middleman there is the board. And that's why you want a strong, independent board to take a view on, you know, whether the fund has a sufficient pipeline, whether it should raise equity, whether you could be diluting returns for shareholders. Yeah, so I think that is definitely something to watch. If we just quickly then look at these sectors in just a little bit more detail. So in terms of the sensitivity to bond yields, I mean, it's generally fair to say that I think most market participants now think that bond yields are close to peaking. They're hoping so anyway. Uh, In terms of sensitivity to, say, a 1% rise or fall in bond yields or gilts as relevant, are there some notable outliers in, say, the renewable energy sector to take one or in infrastructure to take uh, another example? I mean, the key thing you've got to look at, you look at your sensitivity to discount rate movements, which is in effect your bond yield sensitivity. But then you've also got to think about what's your inflation sensitivity as well, because that's the offset. And clearly you want your inflation linkage or inflation sensitivity as, as high as possible to offset that potential for discount rates to increase. I wouldn't say there's any outliers in those sectors, but you need to think about where you've got that discount rate sensitivity and where you don't have that natural inflation linkage. And one, probably the best example is slightly further afield, but it's a music royalties where, you know, music royalties, you have a hundred years of cash flows. So your portfolio valuation is very discount rate sensitive. And to give you an example, if the discount rate on hypnosis was to go up at 1%, your portfolio valuation would fall by 16% and your NAV would fall about 20% because of the gearing. But there's no real inflation offset there because there's no direct inflation linkage in the cash flows. So that's one where you have to be very wary of discount rate increases feeding through. And I think actually that's one of the reasons why hypnosis trades on such a wide discount because the market is clearly worried about higher discount rates there. Just out of interest, what kind of discount rates are they using there? They also have a sort of debt issue as well, don't they? They've had to refinance their debt and so on. But uh, what sort of discount rates are they using compared to some of those other rates you mentioned earlier? So they use eight and a half. And our broad thinking is if your discount rate was starting at six or seven because of the level of, sort of risk premium buffer, then at a six or seven discount rate at the start of last year, given the movement in yields we had, you would have to increase your discount rate. And that's, that's quite clear. If you had a, 
a double digit discount rate, you've got enough of a risk premium buffer to not have to increase your discount rate. Eight and a half is right in the middle, right between seven and 10. So I think the discount rate on song or whether that has to move is completely up for debate. And now the market is almost implying that it should move and a higher discount rate there, but it's still not completely clear whether it does have to actually move in reality. Yes, that's an interesting sector. We may come back to that one. In terms of the issuance, though, we have actually heard plans to relaunch one of the IPOs, many IPOs that was cancelled last year because of the market conditions. Perhaps you can tell us something about that one. It's a global mid-market infrastructure income trust. Can you tell us about that and what you think about that one? I can't tell you any specifics of the deal just because I haven't read the prospectus, to be honest. But what I would say is that is a great sort of test case for the strength of the capital raising ability in our market. I mean, if we see that IPO as successful, then I think that certainly paves the way for secondary offerings from existing funds and potentially other IPOs. So that one's going to be a bit of a bellwether. And we just got to wait and see whether the market will um, support it. I guess we'll find that out quite soon in the next few weeks. Let's just briefly talk about, um, uh, we're not going to talk in depth about this sector, but there have been some interesting developments in the debt sector, which I think you also look at to some extent. We've seen some funds going into managed wind down. What are your thoughts about that and what's going on there in terms of the yields and in terms of the issues that they face or maybe benefit from in a rising or falling interest rate environment? It's a bit of a strange one because those funds have actually started to perform pretty well in NAV terms because they have a lot of exposure to floating rates. So sorry, when I, when I say those funds, let's just talk about the three that have got proposed managed wind downs. That's Starwood, European Loan Finance, MB, Global Monthly Income, and that's VPC Specialty Lending. So most of their loans, not all of their loans, are floating rate and have been floating up nicely for about six months because there's a lag there. And so the underlying yields in the portfolios have also been increasing. But yet we're also, we haven't really seen any sort of meaningful default activity coming through. So the funds are arguably in a bit of a sweet spot. So then it seems strange that they're choosing now to wind down. And I think the issue is, is that sector as a whole has always struggled to keep discounts under control. And a number of these funds have had discount control mechanisms, which were either triggered or about to be triggered. And I think the board's in effect have read the writing on the wall where they were going to have to return quite a bit of capital. The funds will probably be subscale as a result following that. So the board's have actually, I think, done the right thing and offered shareholders the opportunity for managed wind down. Do you think there'll be more following suit as well? Or is it more a question of consolidation now? I don't think there'll be more. But just because we've had a lot of funds already do that in the sector. So there's a lot of credit or debt fund issuance about 18, 19. But most of those funds have now either gone into managed wind down or even liquidated. And so the funds that are left are generally ones where either discounts are relatively tight or there isn't a discount control mechanism. So I think that sort of trend sort of ends with this, this spate of funds going into managed wind down, basically. Just one other sector we might just quickly touch on, and that is the uh, particularly troubled uh, growth equity sector, where we've seen these very sharp declines and very big derating on the likes of Chrysalis and Shehalian, and also to some extent on the early stage biotech trust that they're out there looking at uh, basically more akin to venture capital, I guess, in a way. What do you think the outlook for that sector is in this uh, kind of environment we've been talking about? So just broadly in the sort of venture capital world, 
2022, we saw a number of down funding rounds where venture capital backed companies would raise money, but at substantially lower valuations than previously. And so obviously, if you hold a position, you have to lower your valuation of the company, lower your mark. And so that hits your nav. What we'd like to see in 2023 is a lot more of these down funding rounds. So we'll probably see more weakness in, in some of the navs. But at this stage, you've got some quite wide discounts anticipating that. On a chrysalis, for example, we can look through some of the holdings and think some of the holdings actually have been written down to what seems like a sensible level, but there's still probably some pain to take elsewhere in the portfolio. Obviously, the last few days, you've been going around talking to your clients about the prospects of this year, Matt. What have you been saying to them, or perhaps just as interesting, what have they been saying to you in terms of your clients, both institutional and the extent you do with wealth managers and retail investors as well? I think people are still very much focused on headline inflation levels. So funds with inflation linkage, good levels of inflation linkage is still important. People are still looking for yields and they're still looking for assets which can be resilient because the outlook is still pretty uncertain as it stands. And are they troubled by the discount movements? I mean, the derating or actually is that just reflecting their own views in, in a sense? It's been a painful process last year for a lot of investors. But on the flip side now, it does create opportunities. And if I was to say to you, Matt, put you on the spot and say, when we come back and talk to you again this time next year, do you think we'll have a seen a meaningful change in the sector? I think um, things like on private equity, if we get some lower marks, lower now, this seems counterintuitive, but there could be some short-term share price weakness. But then over the course of the year, you're probably looking at discounts that will go narrower. So I think if you come back in a year's time, we'll see narrower discounts into the private equity. With infrastructure renewables, it would largely depend on guilt yields, and particularly renewables, what the power price environment looks like. So that one's a bit more difficult to call. Yeah, there's still a lot of moving parts out there, to be sure. On that note, Matt, I'd say thank you for your time this week. Always very interesting to talk to you and to give us that uh, very helpful and informative overview of what's going on in the alternative asset sector, which, of course, has become roughly 50% of the whole investment trust sector. So what happens here is going to have significance for uh, most of our listeners and investment trust investors generally. So thanks very much for your time, Matt. So this week, I was delighted to catch up with Stuart Widdison, who is the manager of the Odyssean Investment Trust, a uh, smaller mid-cap specialist vehicle, which is shortly coming up to its fifth anniversary since it IPO'd in 2018. And has the distinction, in the past year at least, of being the second best performing small cap trust over the course of 2022, and uh, one of the few to actually generate a positive return over the year. Uh, up around 5%, which is a pretty good performance in a period when it's benchmarked the uh, AIM and uh, Smaller Companies Index uh, benchmark was down more than 20%, as we know. It was a really tough year for small and mid-cap stocks last year. So I uh, kicked off by asking Stuart to get his uh, reflections on the year just gone and how he uh, must be pleased to have survived what was a fairly traumatic year for many small-cap fund managers with uh, a positive return. Thank you, Jonathan. It was an interesting year. I mean, fundamentally, we've not changed our strategy or done anything particularly different, but it was definitely a year where many other strategies struggled and our strategy really came to the fore. I think, as you're aware, we do focus on absolute valuation. You know, we benchmark all of our, our companies against what we think their real world valuation is. And we think that was one of the major drivers of performance last year because we hadn't got sucked into growth momentum trades of companies that had become very overpriced in our sector. 
I think the other thing was stock-specific catalysts. As you know, we've got a portfolio of almost like special situations where there's lots of things going on that can drive value, even if everything else is flat. And we had a number of those last year with a number of them have made non-core disposals, such as Elementus and James Fisher, which have reduced debt and effectively turned the companies from being where the balance sheet was a concern for investors, where actually people think they're going to get through without any meaningful equity raise. You know, that, that was quite interesting positive catalysts. We also had a group of companies that are active in the B2B media space that were benefiting from events coming back. You know, Events were absolutely killed during COVID, and there was a question how quickly people would come back to face-to-face events. We had a view that people would come back more quickly, and those businesses would trade better than the market thought. That was very much the case in terms of Euromoney and Wilmington, which were our two investments in the, in the sector that year. And also, we think we had a portfolio that had, compared with many small-cap companies, a much higher proportion of overseas earnings. Typically, 60% is the average across our portfolio, which is much higher overseas exposure than the market. And as you know, the sterling was quite weak against the dollar, so a lot of these companies had earnings tailwinds from that. The final block was actually M&A activity. As you're aware, we've had quite a lot of bid approaches for our portfolio companies since we launched. Bear in mind, we have a portfolio of 18 companies. We've had nine recommended bids announced in the last three years which is, we think, a very, very high proportion compared with uh, broader peers. And we had three last year, Euromoney, Devro, and Curtis Banks, which the latter two were announced towards the end of last year. But M&A isn't the sole driver of our performance. In fact, we did some work the other day, and we basically looked at if you stripped out the impact of the bid approaches or the bid premium that we had from those three companies, the underlying portfolio had been flat as opposed to up 5.5%. So flat in a market that was down 22 still a very good result. We looked at that again, and out of 22 holdings, 11 of them generated positive contributions to the portfolio last year, which in a market that fell 20%, we think is, is very creditable and, and a good uh, endorsement of our strategy. Yeah, so as I said, that is a very credible performance. And uh, the reason that it seems to be working so well for you is that you have a distinctive method or approach to this, at least not entirely distinctive, but one or two other imitators. But uh, you have a fairly distinctive approach and this concentrated portfolio, and you're adopting what you like to call the kind of private equity approach where you're getting involved with the managers as well as just being a passive investor in their companies. So a lot of things going right for you, and that's encouraging you were able to issue some shares as well because you've uh, been trading at around par for most of this period. How much money have you managed to raise from that source over the course of the last year or so? It was approximately £25 million, which went to a mixture of a few uh, wealth managers, some retail investors, we believe, and a few high net worth individuals in and around our network. So quite, quite again, good long-term investors and people who really buy into our investment strategy. So that uh, brings your market cap up to, you're getting close to the sort of magic 200 million now, I think, which is mm-hmm. a number at which you don't have people worrying about whether there's enough liquidity in the, in the stock. And you had, it's fair to mention, we talked about this last time, I think we spoke that uh, the board considered a consolidation with another investment trust. That's not happened now, but you've still got this kind of size. Is it going to change what you do? Are you going to have to invest in more stocks now that you're reaching a slightly larger market capitalization? Not at the moment. I mean, we, we always felt the strategy was good for at least 500 million of, of, of AUM and roughly at 200. We've got lots of headroom to go there. Um, I think we highlighted in the interims, when we originally set up the trust, we thought our sweet spot would really be 100 to 500 million at the time of purchase. What's really surprised us over the last four and a half years is we have found good opportunities slightly higher up the market cap scale. So right at the bottom end of 250, if you've got your money, if you've got uh, Elementus and, and NCC, 
these are probably slightly large companies than we thought when we were investing, uh, when we set the trust up, but we've still been able to generate, we think, pretty interesting returns out of those stocks. And there is quite a lot of mispricing there, largely because we think so much money has been raised by growth and momentum investors over the last few years. And really, that's been the dominant style and the, and the dominant place that a lot of capital's gone. And a lot of companies have just been left behind or misunderstood. So, uh, in short, you know, we don't expect to be running 30 stock portfolios plus, you know, it's definitely still going to be roughly 20 stocks. Really, I think our average market cap is 470. You know, that's a barbell of smaller stuff and slightly bigger stuff. No change needed. So let's talk about the UK market then overall and what's been happening in the UK market. As you say, and you and many other UK fund managers have been saying for some while that the UK is on both an absolute and a relative level looking cheap. But of course, it's been looking cheap for quite a long time. And there hasn't been much of a catalyst so far to bring it back into favour, not least when we have mishaps like the trust government interlude, which pushes up your prices and so on. So what in terms of your analysis, though, do you have anything new to say about the fact that the UK valuations for small and mid-cap companies in particular, how they look now compared to uh, either their own history or international comparators? So in early October, when we put our Q3 webinar out and presentation, we came as close to banging the drum as hard as we've ever done about mispricing. It was around the time of the trust budget and small caps looked incredibly cheap. We tend to look for 15% annualized returns across the cycle. We thought we were deploying capital that had the potential you know, that we could make 25% returns over the long term at that point. And markets actually, Jonathan, have rebounded quite well since then. So that was definitely a low point. What do we see from here? Valuations are still inexpensive compared with history you know, of UK, which is particularly smaller companies. It's not ubiquitous, but there are definitely pockets, we think, of, of stocks that look very interesting and mispriced. And I think our thesis would be that QE had really driven lots of capital into US uh, US companies, particularly big companies, big caps, largely driven by passives. So obviously the Fangs, the Teslas, etc. And many other equity markets really hadn't benefited from that euphoria and that sort of really high pricing. As QE is unwound and interest rates start to go up, all equities have been hit indiscriminately. And we're now in this interesting phase where actually we think that certain US stocks and the growth stocks are still not bottomed out. You know, we still think there's downside in some of those valuations. And yet, even after a bit of a recovery, equities elsewhere, particularly UK equities, do look inexpensive. We use Quest, which is a system set up by Terry Smith a long time ago, which was a cash flow based modeling of companies. UK still looks really, really interesting as does small cap. So we've had a slight recovery, but we still think long-term valuations are really interesting. I mean, we have to bear in mind that the Bank of England has been saying the UK is in recession and, and until slightly modified its tone more recently, but could be going into a long recession, even two years, they're saying. So while it may look relatively cheap still, there may be some specific UK reasons why the UK market might struggle. And I guess another part of that is who are going to be the marginal buyers who are going to come in and buy UK equities? Is your experience that international institutional investors are looking at the UK again, and in particular, the kind of stocks that you are looking at? Or is it uh, more a case of corporate buyers from overseas coming in, and uh, they might be the catalyst for at least getting some of the better smaller companies uh, back on a more sensible long-term rating? Well, I, th- I think both. I think the corporate buyers have been active. I mean, one of the takeovers that we had was Devro, a company which really didn't need to raise much capital or any capital really, not particularly exciting, but very strong cash generator. It was bid for by a European peer at a 65% premium to its undisturbed price. So that stock was very, very mispriced. 
And we wouldn't be surprised to see more, uh, particularly around the industrial sector. That's one sector we haven't seen much m in our portfolio yet. And many of those companies which derive most of their revenues from overseas are trading on significant discounts to international peers. So either those stocks re-rate or sadly, they probably won't be listed in the UK anymore. They'll be bought by somebody else. I think the bigger picture about asset allocation to the UK, I think that there's two mindsets. The negative mindset is the UK, and I think you'll probably know this better than me, is, is I think 4% of the MSCI global index now, and it used to be about 10 So it risks being a market that allocators don't feel as though they need to specifically allocate to, although that trend has been going for some time. The quid pro quo or the other side, the more positive side is for the really sophisticated family wealth officers, sovereign wealth funds, they're looking at the UK thinking, this is like the for sale sign. All of these stocks are very, very cheap in absolute and relative terms. There must be good long-term money to be made here. So I, th- I think it's more balanced, nuanced than it's been for the last few years. Look, every fund manager would love to see some allocations coming back to the UK because I think it's been it's been pretty tough for the last 10 years. And the value's there today. But of course, there's another factor at work here which affects some small cap companies more than others. And that is what's happening to the dollar and international exchange rates. Uh, Sterling obviously sank a lot last year and then bounced back again towards the end of the year as the dollar has weakened. What proportion of the revenues in the companies you invest in are linked to the dollar effectively? And uh, is that unusually high or low compared to your peer group? And what will the impact be if the dollar continues to weaken? Excellent question. About 25% of the revenues of our portfolio companies in aggregate come from North America. And there's about another 20% rest of the world, which we think maybe half is US dollar denominated. So maybe quarter third of our portfolio, that we believe is much higher than the average UK small company. But interestingly, we didn't really get a tailwind on the back of that last year. You know, we had hoped that that overseas exposure and FX benefit would lead to some of the companies performing, you know, pretty well. But actually the market was quite indiscriminate about that. And I think it's indicative of there being lots of mispricing around in the market. So I don't think we've seen the benefit of that. If the dollar weakens against Sterling, I'm not sure we're going to see a significant deterioration of any of those share prices on the back of that. I think what it neatly leads into is bid interest from, from overseas buyers. I think at the moment, I mean, what are we, 120, 121, 122 for the US dollar to Sterling? Sterling listed assets still look really attractive. If the if it went to one forty, probably there there might be a slightly less interest. If you're a sort of medium long term investor like I am, and you're more interested in absolute returns than relative returns, uh, relative returns are always interesting in comparing performance, judging maybe it, but uh, it shouldn't be an end in itself. If we do come to the end of the recession, I mean, what tends to happen after bear markets in the uh, smaller mid-cap spaces is that you then get this kind of dash to trash, as it's called, where you know a lot of very cyclical companies come roaring back from very low valuations, and that lasts for about you know six, nine months, to a year maybe. And if that was to happen, then presumably there's a risk that your particular trust would underperform maybe over that period because you don't own those trashy cyclical companies. But uh, you, that's not going to deflect you. You're not going to go chasing those kind of uh, animals, I hope. Oh, look, it all depends on what sectors perform in that way. So we don't have any exposure to the UK consumer. So you're absolutely right. If retail led the market, that would be a relative headwind for us on, uh, you know, on a relative basis. I think our view would be that's happened once or twice in the last 13 years I've been running the strategy. And we actually still made money and we got the relative performance back over the next few months. So that's not what we do. And we absolutely stick to our knitting. And, and our belief is if we stick to our knitting over the long term, it tends to correct itself. 
I suppose another question that I, I dare say you do get occasionally from time to time is, if you're doing so well, you know, why aren't you using one of the advantages of the investment trust structure, which is putting some gearing in there? I don't think you have much gearing in there. Uh, what's your answer to that? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the private equity investment trust sector, quite often over time, there's an inverse correlation of the trusts that use gearing and long-term alpha. So gearing doesn't necessarily deliver superior outperformance. Look, we've run this strategy for many years without gearing. We quite like having a bit of cash in the balance sheet. We use the investment trust structure to allow us to invest in a portfolio that's very concentrated in less liquid companies. That's what we use it for. We couldn't run our strategy as an OIC. And really, we're looking at stock selection rather than gearing to make our returns. You've had a number of bids on the portfolio, but looking through the companies that you own, even though it's a relatively concentrated portfolio, how has that changed in the last six months? Because as these uh, M&A deals go through, you obviously have more cash from that and you've been issuing shares and so on. So you've got capital to deploy. How have you been treating that and what kind of newcomers are you finding to put into the portfolio? Well, it's been a very active period for new investments since actually last March. And we've made six new investments since then, which is above our normal rate of investment. And I think if you looked at it uh, at the year end, about 25% of the NAV is in companies that weren't in the portfolio about eight months ago. So we are finding opportunities to redeploy capital in interesting situations. We've got about 14% of the NAV held for disposal in uh, Curtis Banks and Devro. And Ed and I are very comfortable about finding good homes for that where we think we can get very good returns over the next three years. So we're absolutely not short of ideas to redeploy. Can you give us some examples of the things you put into the portfolio that weren't there this time last year, say? The ones in our top 10 that are disclosed, there's a company called Essential, which is another B2B media company. We discussed before, we'd, we'd done very well out of your money, which was actually a breakup done by the Tate Private. We think Essential is trading at a very, very significant discount to some of parts valuation. It's a really interesting collection of businesses, and it's fallen out of favor with the market for, for a number of reasons, despite actually hitting its numbers. One of the big factors there is the largest investor has well-known outflows in its open-ended fund. And that's been a real drag on the share price because it's constantly selling stock out into the market. Now, at some point, that will stop. And ultimately, we think the company will either find its right valuation as in the stock market or alternatively, it looks a pretty uh, tasty morsel for somebody to privatize. The, the second company that's quite interesting to highlight is James Fisher, which some of your listeners might have come across. It was a, a very popular stock and did very well for many years, but it had a really torrid 18 months or so it's quite a liquid stock, and our specialist trader helped us buy 5% of the company, we think, from distressed sellers over the summer at very attractive valuations. It's quite a different story. It's a big self-help opportunity in a company that probably has too much debt, but there are ways in which that debt can be reduced. They made a number of disposals before Christmas, which, which definitely alleviates the challenge on the balance sheet. It's making 5 to 6% operating margins. It should be making at least 10 and there's a lot of surplus working capital in the business, particularly in debtors that we think with a bit of elbow grease, the management team can can get released and, and pay down some of that debt. And the, the, the markets that it serves, we think, are pretty interesting long-term plays. So again, it's, it's a company that we think we've bought really well, and it's done very well for us so far, but we think there's the potential that there's, there's more to come. And I think you've disclosed that you disposed of one holding, uh, which was in Kemring. Is that the only one you've really got through the whole position, which hasn't gone out because of M&A, but because you've changed your mind about it, or you've just uh, made enough money out of it that you think there are better opportunities elsewhere? That was the major divestment we made this year. It's been in the portfolio for quite a long time, as, as you pointed out, I think for about four and a half years on and off. And we'd largely exited it in uh, the summer of 2021. 
and the stock was under quite a pressure in early 22. So we bought the whole position back and it was about 8% of the fund on the eve of the news around Ukraine. And being a defense company, when the rest of the market took a significant bath on the Ukraine news, Kemring actually went up 40%, I think at one point. And it became, I think, 13 or 14% of the portfolio. So the right thing to do, it's, it's a great company. We think the management team has done a very good job. It's got great market positions. But we'd made our money and we started to redeploy that into other stocks that actually had been interesting before, but became super interesting with that market dislocation. And we've, we've carried on that process during the year. My final question then is to look a little bit more at the actual components of the portfolio. You only invest in four sectors out of several more that you could do in the UK market. We know that there's a lot of private equity funds are uh, having a bit of a tough time at the moment because they, uh, they're facing rising debt costs, as you, as you implied, and their valuations have really sunk. They've gone to big discounts in many cases. If I can ask you this, what is your prognosis to the extent you can think about that uh, for this particular coming year? Uh, and maybe looking beyond that into 2024. How do you think this might play out? I think in terms of public markets, at some point, unlike private equity, public market valuations go down and tend to recover before private equity valuations. We've not seen any significant write-downs yet of private equity books, and it's inevitable. I think one of the outcomes of the QE and cheap debt was private equity companies were buying assets on much higher multiples than they have on previous cycles with much more debt that's probably not going to carry on. <laughs> and at some point, they need to put their hands up and, and write assets down to what probably a realistic valuation is. In comparison, the public markets have basically started to discount recession. Ratings have come off. I think if it's a moderate recession around the world, I think at some point, stock markets start to value coming out the other side and, and stocks go into recovery multiples. And that's the interesting phase. Does it happen is it Q2, Q3, Q4? We don't know. But at some point, that will be quite interesting. And then markets tend to get a bit of momentum in their own. The other main driver of derating last year was outflows from small mid-cap funds. And for those of your readers who follow that, it was brutal. I think 8% of UK small-cap OICs were redeemed last year, which is, the, I think, one of the highest on records. Now, you tend to get a valuation for the market when the redemptions stop and when outflows turn to inflows actually, you tend to get money coming back into the sector. People start buying stocks again, start looking new positions and stocks re-rate. And at some point, it's possible, and I think probable, that's going to happen during this calendar year. No one knows when. You know, We're not believers in double-dip recession. We're not believers of horrific GFC-type recession. You know, balance sheets are much stronger than they were. You know, We're optimistic, but we have no crystal ball when things will turn. Very good. Well, on that note, Stuart, uh, I'd like to thank you for uh, taking part in the podcast again this week, and uh, I hope you can uh, keep up the good work that you've done since this trust was launched back in 2018. That's all for this week. We'll be back again next week with a new guest and more conversation and news about the investment trust sector. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website. 